Well, let's go ahead and turn to Revelation 21. If you're visiting, you haven't got a Bible, that is absolutely fine, because I'm going to read it out to you anyway. Or you can just steal somebody's next to you, because that's usually funny at best. But Revelation 21, and the question we're going to look at today is, how can a good God allow suffering? If he's really good, then how does this, how does this work? How can he do this? So let's we'll read Revelation 21. We're going to read from verse 1 through to the end of verse 5. And it goes as follows. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the things that have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Well, Lord, these words are trustworthy and true. And you have written them down for us. So Lord, would you, would you help us today? Lord, as we gather around your word, as we gather around a basic and yet so important question of you and how you interact with suffering. Lord, would you give me grace as I seek to preach on this topic? And would you give each of the listeners in the room grace as they seek to listen? Lord, help us. Amen. Ian Coffey... And his excellent article entitled, Is God to Blame? begins the article with the following true story. He writes as follows. I rang the doorbell and stood waiting nervously for someone to answer. Eventually the door was opened and a child eyed me up and down quizzically. Fortunately the old man, the grandfather, came into the hallway and greeted me warmly. Come in, come in, he said as he shook my hand. He led me upstairs into the front bedroom. It was crowded with people, both adults and children, and in the center lay a woman in a large double bed. At a guess, she was mid-forties and bore all the signs of a body racked with pain and disease. Her slight frame lay propped up against a mountain of white pillows, her skin a tone of ghastly yellow against the smooth cotton. It was obvious she didn't have long left on earth. The grandfather began speaking in Greek, and I could understand from his hand actions that he was introducing me to the woman and her surrounding family. I guessed he was explaining that I was a pastor from the local church he attended on his regular visits from Greece, and that, at his invitation, I'd come to offer some words of comfort and to pray for this lady and her family. The room fell silent as the old man finished his introduction. And the frail woman's face crumpled as if an invisible hand was screwing it into a tight ball. And she began to wail and shake her head from side to side. With what little strength she had, she was resisting any effort from me or anyone for that matter to offer prayers. A visit intended to bring comfort was instead bringing great grief. One of the men, her husband, I later found out, bundled me from the, from the room and down the stairs. As we stood in the hallway, he was very gracious as he explained to me the delicate family dilemma. The grandfather was well-meaning and concerned for his daughter-in-law's spiritual state. But the invitation was his initiative and certainly not appropriate. The dying woman wanted no press. And so I offered my profuse apologies and left both a humbled and wiser pastor. Same city, many months later, I received a call to go into the pediatric intensive care unit in our local hospital. I stood around the incubator and looked at the tiny body of a baby boy less than a week old. He was battling for life, and his parents, both doctors, knew that he needed a series of miracles to survive. They'd already lost one baby to the same genetic defect, 
and now faced a second living nightmare. They asked if I would hold a short service of thanksgiving and dedication for this little one. Because no matter how brief his life, they wanted to acknowledge that he was a loving gift from a loving Heavenly Father. I am used to such services being held in a crowded church with smiling grandparents and friends looking on with joy-wreathed faces. But there were just three of us in that clinical room, gowned, hatted, and hands scrubbed with disinfectant. The only music was the rhythmic beat of heart monitors. I held the tiny form still attached by wires and tubes to machines, and we held the service with questions, answers, Bible verses and tears. Lots and lots of tears. And we affirmed what the three of us believed to be true. That the God of the Bible is good and loving and sovereign and therefore trustworthy even in mystery in all that he does. You know, suffering is a very real part of our world, isn't it? It's everywhere. And so suffering becomes a philosophical question And it becomes a personal question. It becomes a philosophical question just because of the sheer amount of it that you see in the world. It doesn't take long. You only have to turn on the TV or open the paper and you realize there is immense suffering in our world. Whether it be in Iraq or Afghanistan. I was reading just this week about a guy in Miami who had actually taken some drugs and got high on drugs and then basically got on top of a homeless man and began to eat his face. And you think... What is this? Why is the suffering all over our world? Why is the suffering in and all throughout all of our newspapers and on all of our TV screens? Suffering is a wide question, but suffering is also a personal question, isn't it? Because we suffer, and people around us suffer. Friends and family get sick, and we watch them debilitate. Friends and family die. People we know or we're the people themselves have lost their spouses as we find out they've run off with somebody else. Or our kids just rebel and we have to try and care for them and work out what went wrong along the way. We live in a world that suffers and for us personally, we suffer too. And yet our responses to suffering are so different, aren't they? And that's what we saw to start through that illustration. One lady completely rejected God and somebody else completely embraced God. One individual just rejects God and somebody else, it actually brings them closer to him. And suffering is like that. Thomas Watson once said, suffering either drives people away from God or drives people to God. Some people are driven to God as they trust in his love and sovereignty and grace. But for so many, it drives them away from God. And I think it ultimately, it drives them away from God because of the confusion as to the question of God and suffering. God exists, and he's good, and he's sovereign, then why? Why does he allow it? Why does this happen? I'm a father of three children that I love dearly, and yet when they suffer, I want to try and protect them from that suffering. But I'm not all-powerful, so I can't stop all suffering. But God is all-powerful. So does he not just love people enough? Is that why there's suffering? Or can he not do anything about it? Or does he not even exist? This question is a very real question and a very important question. And it really boils down as we started with how can a good God allow suffering? If he's good, if he's sovereign, how can he allow this to carry on? Well, it's my desire today to seek to serve you by tackling this question. Maybe you have friends that are suffering. And they ask you about God, but you don't really know what to say, how to answer in any way that could bring comfort to their souls. Or maybe in reality you're here today because you're suffering. Or someone you know is suffering. Or someone you know has suffered. And you too are trying to reconcile. How does this work? Well, as I tackle this question, there's two things that you need to realize. First of all, the topic of the goodness of God and suffering is a very complex issue. And I am not a very complex guy. I'm a pretty simple guy trying to take on a pretty complex question. I mean, this is, this is a massive question, and there are massive complexities to it. And so given time limitations and given my limitations, I'm going to try my best, but I think this is such a massive question that it's hard to 
ensure that everybody goes away satisfied with an answer that just brings that satisfaction to all our souls. This is very difficult. And this is very complex in the size of what we're actually facing. But secondarily, the thing we need to realize is the Bible does not offer us a single, slick, easy answer. There's not a specific one verse that I can take you to that says, oh, well, there we are. That explains it. But what there is in the Bible, what God does offer us, I think, are three very specific anchoring points. Three very specific anchoring points as we ascertain the question of the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, and suffering that help us to try and make sense of it. So that's my small caveat as we start. But at the same time, I do want us to look at the major points of Scripture which can help us understand how does good God allow suffering. And here's the first one for you. Number one, God didn't cause suffering to come into the world. We did. And right from the start, that should already in our minds put a slightly different perspective on it. You see, there's so many people I meet in my life as a pastor that say, I would never want to be a Christian because God is rubbish and he allows suffering. He causes people to suffer. Okay, well, first thing we need to understand God doesn't cause anyone to suffer. In his grace, he, he didn't cause suffering to come into the world at all. We did. It's here because of us. And that's what the start of all of your Bibles is about. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there is a historical explanation and story that explains to us at length how suffering arrived into the world. And so right at the start of Genesis 1, we see creation. We see God not actually evolving us from some primordial slime or anything of that nature, but we see God in his grace creating all things, creating light, creating darkness, creating sky and stars and moons and land, creating water and animals and birds and vegetation. And at the absolute pinnacle of all creation, God creates man, man in his own image, man, the individual, man and woman who are going to represent God on the earth and who are in grace then meant to oversee the earth and manage the earth and care for the earth. And in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, things are going pretty darn well. God and man are dwelling in perfect harmony. There was no suffering. There was no sickness. No one was dying. Nothing was dying. God in all his grace was caring for these men, for these man and woman, and they in response are finding their identity and their joy and their full satisfaction in him. And yet by Genesis 3, which is not a long way through our Bibles, it all starts going horribly wrong. See, God instructed man right at the start that you can have anything. This whole garden, you can have access to anything you want. But there's one thing. There's one thing that I do not want you to do. I don't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do that, you will surely die. He's right up front telling you do that, this whole thing is going to break down. So don't do that. But there's all these things you can do. So what does man do? What do we all do? We check out the tree that we're not meant to take. And that is exactly what happens in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve rock up to the tree and the serpent convinces them that, hey, it's probably no big deal. And God's just anxious that if you eat of it, you'll just be like him. And so Eve takes a bite. Quite likes it. Gives it to Adam, who's clearly standing right next to her, completely abdicating his role of leadership. And then he cracks on and has a bite himself. And thus, what takes place in that moment is the world completely and utterly breaks. Man's relationship breaks. God drives them from the garden as a sign and as a signal that man's relationship with God, that had been perfect in harmony and unity before, is now broken. He's driving them from the garden in his holiness and splendor because now mankind has sinned. Man's relationship therefore broke with God and the world itself began to break down. We see sickness coming into the world. We see toil coming into the world. We see pain come into the world. We see death come into the world for the first time. And we see then man's relationship with one another begin to break down. Adam and Eve who'd have been dwelling just quite nicely, thank you very much. Now begin to, mankind, man wants to lord it over the woman and the woman wants to dominate the man. So we see just this friction come between them. And then they have some children, Cain and Abel, and they're hardly little angels. Cain kills Abel. He murders him. 
And so right at the start in Genesis 3, through the fall, we see the world completely and utterly breaks. God's relationship with man breaks. Man's relationship with man breaks. The world breaks and begins to break down. Well, it's been like that ever since. That's the world we live in. If we could have read a paper in Genesis chapter 3, it would have read similarly to what it reads today. The world broke. And it broke because of Adam. It broke because mankind broke it. They rebelled against God. Ever since, man's relationship with God has been broken. We all go our own way. No one's born thinking, you know what? All I want to do in my life is live for God. Now, we come out of our mother's womb, and the first word we realize is mine. You know, because we just think, it, my world is like this big. That's how much I want my, I want my world to revolve around me. And if when I'm older, I might turn to Jesus, that's okay. But right now, my world is all about me. That is a rebellion against God. He made us for him, and we reject it. And this world that we live in is quite simply broken. You know, when I was a kid, I remember having a Spectrum 48K. Now, like, you know, a toaster has more K than that. But when I was a kid, I just thought, this is amazing. I just loved having this computer. And one of my friends put on Facebook the other week, you know, who remembers the 80s games that they most enjoyed? And I was just having a, you know, a fest on this because I thought, yeah, Chucky Egg, that was pretty amazing. Loved that one. And Hopper. Wait, did you ever do that? The Hopper, did that, that must have made it to Australia, right? Hopper. Oh, I mean, it's just unique. Absolutely wonderful. But my favorite was Daily Thompson's Decathlon. That was a quality game because you basically got to, to do all the Olympics and you were Daley Thompson. The only challenge was whenever you, had, whenever you ran, you had to do it with the Z and the X key. And there's only so long you can do that for before there's issues with the computer. And so these rubber keys basically just melted with my hands over time. So, so I'm so busy doing this all the time. And so, so you, I remember it's Z and X and spacebar jump. Jump. And, and, you'd, and when you're like, you know, 14... You don't want to do work. That's what you want to do with your life. Daily Thompson's Decathlon's get gold. So I spent most of my teenage years on Daily Thompson's Decathlon. But my, my Spectrum 48K then broke because the Z and the X key didn't, didn't work anymore. So what I did is I turned over and, and I thought, there are four screws here. And I think if I just take this to bits, I could probably pop out the Z and the X key. I'll do something magical with those keys to try and replace them so I can still play Daily Thompson's Decathlon. The only small issue was, as I got to the back of the computer and turned it over, by the screws, it just simply read, Do not open. Now, I took that as a suggestion, rather than, a, rather than an instruction or a warning. So I got my dad's screwdrivers. He didn't know I had them, but I just thought, I've got to mend this Z and X key. Clearly, my life has depended upon it. So I, so I got the screwdriver, and I, I, I covered with one hand the do not open, and then started the screws. And as I got one screw out, everything was fine. The second screw was okay as well. And the third screw was genius, came out. I got to the fourth screw, the, the final screw. I was a little worried, because there were sounds coming from the computer, and that disturbed me a little bit. But I thought, Let, let's stick with it. And I undid the last screw, and as the last screw popped out, so did the entire back of the computer. It, and the whole thing just went, pew! So the face is now on the floor, and, and the back is sort of about here, flying through the air. And in slow motion, like something out of the Matrix, I could just see springs and buttons going everywhere. And it was one of those times where you feel like time is slowing down as you watch it. Well, concern now, because this is actually my parents' computer. I forgot to tell you that. Uh, concern <laughs> that I may have damaged the computer in some way. I, I, I spent the rest of the afternoon trying to put it back together, trying to put the buttons back in, trying to find all the springs for the buttons, and, and just tried pushing it all in and screwing it back together. Well, needless to say, it never worked again. Daily Thompson's Decathlon was never played again, and I'm still going to counselling just to try and come to terms with that. It was just a sad season of my life. But here's the point. I broke the computer. God didn't break my computer. I broke it. There was a clear instruction on the computer, do not open. I ignored it. I screwed it. And the whole thing bust. That is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. God gave them one instruction. They busted. And ever since, we've been living in a world that's broken. It's a broken down house. People suffer. Our relationship with God is broken. The world is broken. Our relationships with one another, they break. 
there are all sorts of challenges that we face in our lives. And mankind's response to this is wide and varied. Some people look at the world now and they just decide that God doesn't even exist. You know, look at it. God can't allow this, so I'm just taking it that he doesn't even exist. Other people say, no, I believe God exists because I believe he is the creator and I just, I just sense it. I sense he's around. But I'm going to reject him because if he was good, he wouldn't allow this. He wouldn't be causing this suffering to take place. He'd be changing it all up. He'd be sorting this out. If he was a good God, then he would be caring and acting and this wouldn't be existing in the way it is. Well, God does exist. And we can't point the finger at suffering and say, therefore, he doesn't exist. We have to understand right up front, God didn't cause our suffering to come into the world. We did. We broke it. We bust it. But that does still leave the question, though, hey, if, well, okay, if it's our fault that it caused it, if, if the breakage happened because of us, fine, but why doesn't God come now and change it? Why doesn't God step into the world right now and stop it? Well, here's point two. One day, for all those who are in Christ Jesus, he will. One day, for all those that are in Christ Jesus, all suffering will come to an end. That's a fact. And that day is what we spoke about and read about right at the start here of Revelation 21. Because in Revelation chapter 21, what we see is that day. A day when Jesus, in all his grace, does indeed return. A day when he will judge the living and the dead. A day when all those who are found in Christ Jesus will be ushered into heaven, a new home. And what a day that will be. See, the Bible sings of this day, a day of heaven. A day when he judges the living and the dead, and for all those that are found in Christ Jesus, they are ushered as heaven will be their home. And heaven is an amazing place, it's biblically defined. Because heaven, more than anything, is a place that in grace, there is no more suffering. In fact, in heaven, there is no more sickness. No more cleft palates, no more heart defects, no more arthritis, no more mental illness. There's no more handicaps in heaven, no more cancer, no more AIDS, no more flu, no more heart attacks, no more tooth decay. Dentists will be very bored in heaven and I'll be the first to rub their little heads on that day going, ah. There'll be no more sickness. They won't be needed in the same way. There'll be no more sin, no more adultery, no more rape. No more theft, no more murder, no more immorality. We'll be reading our papers and we won't be reading about crime or war or abuse. There'll be no more death and no more pain. There will be no more decay and corruption. What the secular media often describes as hell is so different to what the Bible paints hell as. And what the secular media describes as heaven is so different to what the secular media describes it as. Heaven is a place of great joy. It is completely remiss of sickness and sin and death and pain and decay and corruption, but it is completely overwhelmed with joy. Heaven will ring with the sound of laughter, the sound of joy, the sound of friendship. There will be feasting and drinking in heaven. There will be music and worship in heaven. There will be paradise to explore. Think about all the things that you Aussies want to see. You travel more than anybody else I've ever met in the entire world. You want to see everything. We want to see the glaciers. We want to see the beaches. We want to see the seas. We want to see the lands. We want to see the fjords and the rivers and the great oceans of the world. Well, they're just a simple foretaste of what is to come in heaven. They're just, they're just a pretend start for what we're really going to get in heaven. For every single part of what you see in the world has been crafted by God as a mere foretaste for what awaits his children. And there on that day, for all those who are in Christ, they'll be given new bodies. New bodies where they'll be able to run and walk and touch and talk and see and hear and taste in glorious perfection. And Jesus will be there. And friends will be there. Around the sound of joy. Wayne Grudem says, when we look into the face of our Lord... And he looks back at us with infinite love. We will see in him the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. 
In the face of God, we will see the fulfillment of all the longing we have ever had. To know perfect love, peace and joy, and to know truth and justice, holiness and wisdom, goodness and power and glory and beauty. Listen, when we finally see the Lord face to face, our hearts will want for nothing less. You know, for Christians, what a day that will be. It will be a return in so many ways to the Garden of Eden before it broke. It will be a return to that which we were made for. It will be a return to a venue without suffering, without death, without corruption, but to a place instead where mankind truly finds his place of home. The one he longs for, Jesus, will be there. And in that moment, everything will make sense. And in that moment, we will want for nothing else. For Christians... What a day that will be. And yet for non-Christians, for unbelievers, this word paints that day as the most fearful day in the universe. And I shudder to think of that day. I look forward to it for Christians, but I shudder for the day for those who rejected Christ. You see, so many people in our world don't like thinking about the last day. They pretend that we're not going to die, and that seems to solve the problem. But as a pastor, I tend to see a lot of people that have rejected Christ, that then when they realize they're going to die, you're the first person they want to talk to. But not everybody even gets that opportunity to talk. It's over in a flash, and it's, it's gone. I remember when I was at pastor's college 10 years ago, and we arrived at college one day and there was all these cameras around and you know we thought, man, the pastor's college has got really quite popular this year. They want to report about it, but that wasn't the case. As we walked in, we realized there were no kids in the place. We were in there for about five minutes and then we were sent home. And you're like, you know, what's going on? What has happened here today? Well, the pastor's college in the United States in D.C. was joined to a school. And what had happened is on the way to school, a 17-year-old and a 13-year-old with a 17 driving had driven straight into a tree and both were killed instantly. So all the reporters were there to find out about how they, you know, their friends and their parents. And they think, my, you can think you've got your whole life. But just as the psalmist says, life is like grass and the wind blows over it and it withers and it's gone. We never know how long we've got and Some people think about that last day and they think, well, you know what, I'm not too worried about that last day because on that last day I just think nothing's going to happen. So we just die and and that's it. And that's their perspective. And that's okay, but I think it makes life pretty boring because it means life's just been a big joke. It's been a pretend. You haven't really felt love, not really. That's just chemicals in your body making you think you feel love. It doesn't really exist. We're just creatures. So everybody could just do what they want because it's all a big joke. But some people really think that's what's going to happen. You just die and you're gone. Other people think that we're going to get a second chance. We're going to come back as a reincarnated being or we're going to come back through purgatory or something else is going to happen. Reincarnation in particular freaks me out. I'd probably come back as a fly or something completely annoying, get swatted, and then come back as something else. But I'm not particularly anxious about it because in all reality, the Bible doesn't talk about purgatory. The Bible doesn't talk about reincarnation. The Bible's clear. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, Man is destined to die once, and after that faces judgment. It's not complicated. You live, you die, and when you die, you stand before the creator of the earth, and you give an account for your life. Now, I'm aware for some of you in the room, that's probably not going to make me very popular because you don't want to think about that. But you know, if we were all to jump off the top of a cliff and somebody said, well, I don't really want to talk about gravity and think about gravity, that's fine, but we're all dead. Okay, we're all going towards this zone, whether we like it or not. This is just part of it. I'm just the messenger telling you what this Bible teaches. The Bible's clear that we will all die and we will all stand on that last day before the creator of the earth and give an account for our lives. The difference is two very different eternities wait depending on how we react to Jesus and his finished work. You see, here's what's going to happen. Let me paint the picture for you. God the judge on that last day and say for imagine we all die at the same time and we're all there. So God's the judge there and I'm going to rock up to be with him. 
So he's going to call me over, and there I'm going to stand. And don't get me wrong, I'm going to be quaking in my boots just like you are. So there I'm going to stand before the creator of the earth, and he's going to pull out a book on my life. And he's going to read many, many, many things that I've done wrong. Things that I've rejected him in. Things that I've sinned against him. Things that I've blown it in against him. Things that I should have done that I haven't. And things that I have done that I shouldn't. And it's going to be a pretty damn big book on my life. And I'm not proud of that. But it's just the reality. And as that book then comes out and as he flicks through it, I'll have to give an account for those things. But here's the amazing thing. Somebody has to pay the price for my sin. God is holy. And somebody therefore must be punished for my sin. But as he views my life, because I've put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, by each of my sins, there will be written these words, paid for in full by the blood of the Lamb. And those words will have been written in blood through Jesus himself. So as I stand on that last day, the book will come out and I will stand there quaking in my boots. But ultimately he will say, son, your sins have been paid for in full. And so welcome home. Heaven is your home. That is scandalous grace. It is absolutely scandalous grace. Have I done the sins? I have. Completely. And yet Jesus Christ paid for them in full at Calvary in my place. And so heaven will be my home. Am I better than you? Absolutely not. I know non-Christians with far more character than I. I do. I have relatives that don't know Jesus. And I look at them and think, I I want to be like you when I grow up. You're full of character. There are so many things I need to change in. But my access to heaven is not based upon me. My access to heaven is based upon Jesus and his work alone. Well, then you go next. And you don't know Jesus. The same thing happens. You stand in the same spot that I did. The judge is still the same judge. And he opens the book on your life. Just like he did mine. He sees all the things that you have done and shouldn't have done. And he sees all the things you haven't done and should have. But your sin has to be punished like mine does. But because of your rejection of Jesus, your sin hasn't been paid for yet. And so where I get ushered into heaven because it's been paid for, you get ushered into into hell because somebody's got to pay for your sin. You could have put your faith in Jesus. But you rejected him. So your sin is still left unpaid. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But that's what the Bible paints for us. It paints for that last day and how man is destined to die once, but after that faces judgment. Now, what has that got to do with how can God allow suffering? Here's what. How can God allow suffering? Here it is as an overarching theme, okay? God is allowing suffering because in his goodness, he's giving the world more time. Why is he allowing the world that we screwed up to carry on? He's allowing it. And he's allowing it even in its suffering to carry on because he's giving unbelievers more time to respond to him. He doesn't want to see people go to hell. He wants to see people with him in the heavenly realms. But he's given you that choice. But he is also, in his grace, giving you time. Listen, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came and he died on a cross. And in dying, in scandalous grace, he says, Listen, all those who put their faith in me as Lord and Savior, you can have life and life in abundance. He says right when he walked here 2,000 years ago, I haven't come to judge the earth. I've come to give life and life in abundance. He wasn't saying, I'm never coming back to judge the earth. He knows he will on that day to come. But 2,000 years ago, it was the rescue mission. I've come to make a way for you to be forgiven of your sin. I've come to make a way for you to be reconciled to God. I've come to make a way for you to be adopted into the very family of God. I've come to make a way whereby that you can ensure that when you die, heaven will be your home. Well, how, how did he do that? Well... By, by dying on a cross. The issue there wasn't physical pain. The issue there was that the father turned his face away from his son. And the father turned his wrath on his son. 
for the sin of all those who would come to know him as Lord and Savior. He was making a way for people to respond. He was making a way of a great rescue escape at Calvary. And that then action calls on a response. So why is God allowing suffering? He's allowing suffering because in his goodness, he's giving unbelievers more time. He wants them to respond. And so he's giving them more time. And when he returns, like a thief in the night, the Bible calls it, there is no more time. Then it's just judgment. No more time. You know, when you look at it like that, it really does put a different perspective on why is the suffering, doesn't it? Is God to be hated for giving unbelievers more time to respond to him so that they don't have to suffer an eternity, but instead know him as Lord and Savior and enjoy all the days of their lives? Should he be hated for that? I would argue not. I think he should be applauded for that. Because that is our gracious and compassionate God. How kind that he would give people more time to respond. If you're a Christian here today, then I want to encourage you. Here's the third anchor, specifically for you. For all those who are in Christ, even in our suffering, we are never alone. If you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior today, I want you to know with, without any doubt at all, you are never alone in your suffering. You know, there's so often mystery attached to our suffering, isn't there? And I'm not supposing that I've suffered as much as people in this room. I'm sure there are people in this room that have suffered way more than I have. And yet I do know suffering. You see, our son, when he was born, he was born with a cleft palate and two holes in his heart. And one of his kidneys was failing. And that was overwhelming. And then we gave him a first operation when he was three on his palate where they cut between just behind his tooth all the way back down his throat and rearranged all his muscles. And he was three years old. And then he had the same again done when he was five. And then when he was seven, just before we moved to Australia, he had heart surgery. And you're there as the dad signing papers to ensure that if he dies, you won't hold them responsible. It's hard. My granddad then suffered a series of strokes and we got to see him just die over a short period of time. As a pastor, I've had over the last 11 years the privilege but also difficulty of seeing people when they are just about to go. People that you walk in and you've known well, but in those final moments, you barely recognize them. And you just feel for them and, and they want to hold your hand. You're trying to comfort them. But I've seen suffering. It's hard. And there is an element, without any doubt, of mystery attached to that suffering. Lord, why, why, why did you allow Josh to have a heart surgery and a cleft palate? I don't know. There's mystery attached to suffering. It's so often like a tapestry. God looks at the top side. And one day we will all look at the top side and see the, the wonderful tapestry that he's made with our lives and with our universe. And yet we often look at the underside and all we can see is these knots and these threads hanging out. And you think, what are you doing? He's doing something. But sometimes we just don't know what he's doing. And we have to trust him. There is mystery attached to suffering. But here's the thing. There is no mystery as Christians and the truth that even in our suffering, we are never, ever alone. Ever. That is no mystery. That's a fact. And it is one of the most comforting themes that runs throughout the entire Bible. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I'll listen to this, brothers and sisters, and receive it for your heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Here's why. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely and goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That was his assurance. He knew, Lord, I know I'm going to suffer. For sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. I know, being born into this broken down house, that things will happen to me. But here's what I know, having reviewed your character, and having reviewed your goodness, and having reviewed your commitment to me, here's what I know, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That echoes then time and time again through scripture. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Here's where my help comes. My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. They are walking on the pilgrimage and they are looking up as they sing this pilgrim song to the great hills of Judah, the majesty of the hills of Judah. And they're saying, Lord, even along this difficult journey, where does my help come? My help comes from the one who made those. <laughs> my help comes from the one that made the mountains of Judah, the hill reign of Judah. And so, Lord, I can trust you. And I do trust you because, Lord, I know that you neither slumber nor sleep for you are my keeper. You are my shade at my right hand. By day you protect me from the sun. By night you protect me from the moon. We then see Jesus all the way through the Gospels not being indifferent with suffering. God incarnate didn't come to the world and then said, oh, well, never mind, I've got a job to do. You see him time and time again weeping with people taking time for the one. The crowd are hassling him and he is tired. But then blind Bartimaeus calls him and he stops everything. Because I've got to go help that guy. So he goes and helps. You see him one-on-one in compassion, time and time again being with people and helping people in their suffering. And he has not changed to this day, my friends. He still deals with his people like that to this day, dealing with us with intimacy and care as the good shepherd. Paul in Romans 8 says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be, to sep- will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then there is mystery attached. But there is no mystery attached all the way through Scripture that He in all of His might is with you. He's with you. He's helping you. He's protecting you. He's giving you grace. And I have seen that time and time and time again. Where you get close to people in extreme suffering and they're more full of faith than you are. They're receiving a grace that you, as the onlooker, are not receiving. And yet they are very aware of the nearness of God. I remember going to see one guy just before I moved to Australia. And he was dying. It was actually the day before he died. He was dying of cancer. And we went in, myself and and my colleague, the other pastor there, and held his hands. And he was communicating to us in part that it was very difficult. And we said, well, Graham it would appear that you're going to be meeting the Savior pretty soon. You haven't got long, eh? Because there's no point pretending when we're at that point. You're going to be gone soon, Graham. And he opened his eyes and he looked up and he said this. He said, yes, but I'm still running. It was one of the most precious moments of my life. A man who 
is in a wreck of suffering, still had eyes as bright as I've ever seen anyone. So yeah, but I'm still running. He knew who he was made for. And he was in his body and in his mind receiving a grace that I wasn't receiving looking on. But he was. He was experiencing his saviour. He was experiencing the good shepherd, one who was with him. What must have been going through his mind only knows. But what I do know is his saviour was with him. It was amazing to watch. And so folks, I want to encourage you, if you know Jesus, then throughout this time, between now and when the saviour returns, even in your suffering, you're never alone. And I trust that brings comfort to you. It should do. It's meant to. And yet as we close, I, I just want to close with a question for unbelievers, those that don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. How can a good God allow suffering? A good God can allow suffering because in his goodness, he's giving you more time. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to die on a cross and he died to make a way for you to have life and life in abundance. He died so that you could be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to God and adopted into the family of God and know for sure that heaven is your home. He suffered the ultimate suffering so that through faith in eternity you would never have to suffer again. That's grace. That's kindness. And yet his work requires a response. And so here's my question. How are you going to respond to Christ in the time that he's given you. How are you going to respond? He's allowing this time to prolong, to give you time. So how are you going to respond with this time? Maybe you'll reject him. And maybe some of you, that's your story. You think, thanks very much. Um, Cheers. Right, soccer time. And we just carry on with life. and It makes no difference. And you reject him. And listen, I respect you for that. That's your choice. I would urge you not to do that because if I'm right, you're in a lot of trouble. This is serious stuff. But I do respect you. So if you reject him, I will still always be your friend. And if I haven't met you yet and you introduce yourself on the premise of I'm rejecting him, will you be my friend? The answer is yes. (laughs) We don't extend friendship at Sovereign Grace Church based on your decision. We extend friendship because we love people and we want to be with people and we want to tell people about Jesus. But maybe you'll reject them. Maybe for others of you, maybe you have questions and they're wide and they're varied. I understand that. I had loads of questions once too. And now I have more questions with less answers. But I know what it is to actually sit there and just think, I have so many questions. Particularly in my late teens years, I had hundreds of questions. Well, keep coming back to church and let's chat. If you ever want to chat to me or any one of the leaders or on the back of the bulletin, we'll we'll talk to you about anything. There's no question that's sort of out the remit of being asked, which is like a naughty question. They're my favorites, to be honest. You know, feel free to just ask anything you want because we want to genuinely dialogue on some of the big questions of life. And they're real. And they're important. And maybe that's your response. You have questions. Or maybe your response is, you know what? I want to respond to Jesus. That's my response. I believe you. How do I respond? Well, here's how. Romans 10 verse 9 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. What do you have to do to become a Christian? Do you have to go to church? Nope. Do you have to pray? No. Do you have to read your Bible every day? Not really. Do you have to give to charity? If you like. But they're not the things. Being a Christian, becoming a Christian is all about faith. It's about putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It's about putting your faith in him that he's your saviour and putting your faith in him that he's your Lord. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means that you make him the king of your life and one that you want to follow. And you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he died in your place and that he died for you. When you do that, then Christianity is yours. And that last day for you then should hold no fear and tribulation, but instead should hold great joy as you know that heaven is going to be your home. 
Folks, if you want to do that, then let us know. Because we'd love to walk you through that. But to be honest, you can do it any time you want. God's listening to you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. So if that's your desire, then do that. You know, I was about 18 years old when I did that. I'd actually got engaged to a girl. Um, I'd met her about six weeks earlier. I thought that was more than long enough to know that she was the one. So we got engaged. Um, I left university. And I got a job, which is a rubbish job. I was earning $12,000 a year, which wasn't brilliant, because also we had just bought a house on joint wages, and I'd just taken a car loan, which is nearly the entirety of what I earned. And six weeks before we were due to get married, she decided I'm not up for it. That was an issue. I was overwhelmed with just sadness, and my life just came crashing down. I'd always been a grade-A student. I'd done well in sports, had friends. Now I'm sitting in my house where there's no furniture with debts. And that was about it. But it was in that season of my life, I thought, I, I've got to bottom out of this God thing. I've got to work out what I re- really believe about Jesus, what I really believe about God, what I believe about suffering. How does this work? Is the Bible reliable? How do we even know? And in God's grace, I bombed that out. And I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And from that day on, I've never looked back. It is great joy to know that I'm forgiven of my sins. It is scandalous grace. It is great joy to know that heaven is going to be my home, not because of my behavior, but because of the behavior of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with me. You're better than me. But you're not better than Jesus. And he's where my faith resides. Folks, if that is your story and you want to respond in that way, then do. And would you know then in that moment the grace that I too know? Because it's amazing and it's scandalous. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the way that you guide us and shepherd us so so gently. Lord, you don't keep us trucking along and in confusion, but you speak to us with grace and mercy and splendor. You're so kind. And so, Lord, for every individual in the room, would we just know your nearness? Would we know your comfort? Lord, where suffering does exist, would we know, would we know your active involvement in line with your word? Help us in your amazing grace, Lord. Amen.